Choke points. Tell the truth edition. Brought to you by Acton's Quality Roofing. So, are your car tabs up to date? Have you checked them recently? Have you renewed them? Listeners have noticed a lot of expired tabs out there lately, and Chris is going to get to the bottom of it. And it's something that I really hadn't noticed until people started bringing it up. Now I can't go very long without noticing an expired tab. Isn't that how it always is? You don't see something, then you get noticed, and you're like, oh, yeah, oh, my gosh, look at this. Uh, I've seen a couple that, you know, month or two, and then some more than a year I've even seen that late. And so I asked the Department of Licensing, what can they tell me about this? How many people are out there in this situation? And it turns out the DOL doesn't track non-renewals. The reason, they say many cars are sold, they're sent out of state, they sit empty in garages, or maybe they're wrecked in crashes, and the public is not required to inform the state of those circumstances. So the DOL just doesn't track this. The state patrol, though, does track the number of times that people with expired tabs have been pulled over. Before the pandemic, nearly 80,000 drivers a year would be caught with expired tabs. That's across the state and just the department, uh, just state troopers. Those numbers fell during the pandemic, as did all state patrol violations because of staffing shortage and other factors. Through October of this year, nearly 42,000 people have been pulled over with expired tabs. Washington State Patrol Sergeant Chelsea Hodgson says this is something that you can be pulled over for. They are a still considered a primary offense. We can pull them over for tab just like we could for speeding or any other equipment violation, those kind of things. You don't have to have something else in place before you can stop them. But Sergeant Hodgson says many of the violations are found while drivers are pulled over for something else. It can be something that, you know, we did stop them for speed or some other violation. And when we go up there, you know, we ask for everything the same time. License, registration, proof of insurance. At that point, when we see the registration, we might notice, oh, hey, by the way, your tabs are expired. So the troop will also put notation down that we either gave enforcement or education on that. 91% of drivers have been given verbal or written warnings for tab violations so far this year. That means only 9% are actually getting tickets for this. Prior to the pandemic, warnings were running at about 89%, so about 11% ticket rate. Sergeant Hodgson says it's the troopers have the final call on whether to issue a ticket. It's up to the officer's discretion of what they want to do. We can educate through verbal and written warnings, or we can also use enforcement action through infraction citations, depending on what the violation is. You can be pulled over and ticketed even if you're one day late on your tabs, but it's clear that troopers are somewhat lenient and focus on educating drivers. If your tabs are less than two months overdue, the fine is $136. More than two months, the ticket will run you $228. Sergeant Hodson says most people just aren't aware. You have the folks that generally, you know, honestly had no idea. Um, you have other ones. The the common one I used to get was, you know, well, my husband or my wife was the one that was supposed to pay it. I didn't know. Uh, which I always thought was funny. So I'm not sure throwing a spouse under the bus is the right decision when talking to a trooper, but it sounds like no, it's No, I can popular... tell you it's not. Okay, oh, good. you've done that? Not really. But uh, yeah, again, that, that's something you probably shouldn't do. You know, I, I, I've heard from listeners throughout the pandemic and, you know, kind of through the, the economic struggles we've been having that, you know, they haven't renewed because of the cost, especially I here. I just got mine, $550. Right, and again. And I'm going, okay, most people 
do not have that to just plunk down on taps. And again, that's a, you're in the Sound Transit taxing district, too. Yeah, so I'm hearing me. that from a lot of people who are having to pay that. And so some tell me that they just can't afford it or it's just down their priority list during the pandemic and during you know the this downturn we're dealing with. Now, the state patrol is still enforcing this, but other agencies in the state, like Seattle Police, have chosen to stop enforcing expired tabs altogether, at least as a primary offense. So I need some help on the state roofing text line. Let me know what you've seen on the roads. Have you seen an uptick in this just anecdotally, or maybe you haven't gotten your tabs renewed. Tell us why. Uh, you know, kind of explain, you know, kind of the decision making. Uh, the text line, 888-973-5476. In my case, it was because, uh, and I paid one of the 200 plus dollar tickets because I was like six months late. Wow. Wow. Um, they used to send you a letter in the mail and now they just do it by email. And I got so much junk in my email box, I, I didn't say well, it. Interesting. See, I got my tab renewal notice in the mail. Oh, well, maybe. Yeah, I, I, get mine, I got mine in the mail, too, but that still doesn't mean it doesn't get I'm lost throwing that out too. all my you're bills. You're running out of excuses, You're Dave. right. You're absolutely right. Well, it was my wife. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. No. That was a joke. But I get it. Don't they have any programs, like a payment program yeah, or I mean, anything for people? Because even I don't like, you know, it's like, okay, I've got daycare, I've got grocery, you know, everybody's bills are yeah, especially in, in the sound transit zone. Right. I mean, and you think, okay, you know, every year, save up, have money set aside, but Come on, we're humans. This is life. So, is there a payment program? I'll check into that, but I'm sure they could probably work with you if you're like, listen, I'm just deciding between rent, groceries, or tabs. You're not going to win. Uh, and I so, know, what they though. can we do? We should look yeah. into it. Yeah. When uh, I was start, when I started, I took it my cell phone, went to the URL site, and, and started right there. You know, buying the tab that didn't help. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I get nervous if I'm a day late on that kind of stuff. But uh, I know now. I know I've paid my share to Sound Transit. That's good, been, that's good, for good. sure. Add a little tip to the state patrol. <laughs> Seattle's Morning News. The Seattle Kraken wants fans to have an epic time at all NHL home games, and so they managed to score some music to make that happen. Here's Cairo News Radio's Heather Bosch. When you've named your team after an enormous mythical creature, fans have big expectations. Fortunately, the Kraken have connections. We have an amazing ownership group, um, and one of our investors is Jerry Brockheimer, the movie producer behind the legendary Top Gun franchises. This is your captain speaking. Yes, that producer. Kraken marketing chief Katie Townsend wanted something special for the fans as their NHL team players take to the ice. And as I was laying out the vision, he said, oh, I have a friend who I could ask a favor and see if he would compose a piece of music. Not long after, Townsend received an email from Bruckheimer. I've seen Hans Zimmer in London and he's up for doing this. Yes, that composer. And the Oscar goes to Hans Zimmer. We actually received a seven to eight minute suite of music from Hans, and we have taken different elements of that for this three minute introduction before the players take the ice. The soaring orchestration is reminiscent of Zimmer's work on the Pirates of the Caribbean. Fitting since the Kraken score accompanies a mini movie fans watch on the Climate Pledge big screens. 
The Triglass production features ancient sailing ships bursting through sepia-toned maps and very serious fishermen who appear to be expecting a giant octopus to climb out of the sea any moment. It sets a tone, which is, Townsend says, exactly what they wanted. We like to think that when people come to the arena, they're entering the deep. The mystery of the Kraken is lurking somewhere. And if we can create an immersive experience for fans that accompanies the hockey on the ice, then we hope they'll have an amazing time. Heather Bosch, Cairo News Radio. I haven't seen that show yet. I've seen videos of it. It's pretty spectacular. Yeah. It is time for an update on homelessness. The governor says that his new policies are making a dent, but he even he acknowledges it's not enough. So let's go to Cairo News Radio's Hannah Scott. Hannah, what can you tell us? Good morning, Dave. Yes, uh, Governor Inslee in Seattle yesterday, along with some other folks, uh, touring a homeless shelter here and then sharing uh, some of the success stories, really, that uh, he and, uh, interestingly, others in the homelessness uh, and affordable housing space uh, shared uh, his opinion on. So they all gathered yesterday to talk to reporters. Um, And as far as what's working? We've got to continue on this strategy of rapid housing. Now, this is something I've been very... Uh, diligent on and frankly uh, insistent on is that when we make our investment in housing, we insist on a significant part of our position being on rapid housing. That's why I'm glad the legislators joined us by putting about $300 million of the 800 we invested into these rapid housing projects. And that rapid housing is the kind of thing that are moving people very, very quickly to get this job done. We need to continue our, our commitment to that. So rapid rehousing, because he doesn't say it there, that's the uh, money that is used to buy up hotels or other buildings, other properties that they can turn into kind of apartment buildings and really get people into out of an encampment, let's say, and into a shelter, temporary housing situation, permanent housing even, um, or permanent supportive housing uh, in weeks, right, instead of waiting for something to be built up from scratch. That's been a really huge thing. We heard Senator David Frocht, who was behind this effort, uh, talk to us uh, last year as this uh, money was starting to come in and it's been a big help there's a push to get more money into that so i expect you'll see a big ask in his budget proposal uh next month uh, from the governor on that the other effort he says is is going well is the effort to clear dangerous encampments along highways in the last several months we've seen quite a number of these encampments are removed from our right-of-ways and as you know this is a safety issue both for the traveling public and for the folks who've been living in squalor along our freeways. And because of the diligent work of people at our Department of Transportation, our State Patrol, our law enforcement, multiple other local officials, we are being able to remove these encampments and importantly find other housing that is much safer for people so they are not living in squalor along our freeways. And those people who were there are now in much more secure housing. That has been replicated throughout freeways and highways across the state of Washington. So we are making significant progress. So as far as why that's working. We are able to provide people alternate, better housing up and down the spectrum. Tiny houses, converted hotels, facilities such as this that local communities are helping with us, and building more permanent housing. Because we have come to understand we are not going to wait. We have to jump on this problem today. 
We cannot simply look at for solutions that take decades. We need solutions that we get done in weeks. Uh, people have been saying that for a long time, Hannah. So what brought about this conversion? Well, again, so there's been, you know, I'm always telling you anytime we talk about homelessness, uh, you know, this is what the legislature's done. This is, you know, what the city's done. Here's where this investment's going. And I think you're starting to see some of those changes because of those new programs. So the right-of-way program is new, really being aggressive about clearing those encampments off the highways. Um, that's been successful. But in order to do that, you have to have that uh, someplace for them to go, right? You have to have that housing, someplace to put them. So they've got more tiny home villages. They've got this rapid rehousing coming up all over the place so those two things have been able to go hand in hand plus you've got the collaboration specifically if you're talking about the right-of-way initiative where you've got you know washdot you've got the cities the states the various nonprofits all kind of collaborating together with the regional homelessness authority so that is starting to come to fruition i'll get to more of this later before we're done but i, I was very impressed yesterday by the um, guest list, if you will, of the speakers, mm -hmm. right? You had Mark Dones from the Re Regional Homelessness Authority, Lisa Dugard from the Pub Public Defenders Association and co-lead and lead, uh, as well as the governor, uh, Representative Macri, who we're about to hear from. All of these folks I've interviewed separately over the years and their kind of siloed uh, efforts towards the addressing of the homelessness and affordable housing crisis, this collaboration, I think, is going to be what makes it a difference or is going to give us the best chance to make a difference. Uh, I want to get to some of the things that the governor previewed about what we want to see in the upcoming session. Uh, he said, uh, here's what we can expect. One of the things we need to do is find some additional places to build more housing. We have some of our zoning rules now that are an uh, a, a, uh, unnecessary restriction on housing. And I look forward to working with legislators. We were going to make some proposals to increase housing opportunities along transit corridors, which is so effective for people to get to work and consider percentages that we'll expect cities to help with housing uh, uh, facilities in their cities. I look forward to working with legislators to try to get that, that job done. We want to look at creative ideas like potentially expanding the REIT exemption for people who sell their homes to first-time buyers. And we're going to look for ways to expedite permitting so we can build housing more, uh, more quickly. So, again, zoning, like you heard him try to push uh, in the last session, right? So we can, you know, get rid of some single-family home zoning areas. Uh, more housing by transit. The... Uh, help from cities. I don't think he actually said it there. What he's talking about is requiring uh, cities to have buildings with a certain percentage of affordable housing. It's uh, kind of like the, um, I forget the initials of the other project, but we've had stuff like that before. So there's a lot of uh, effort that we expect to see there. And I, the read exemption for anybody who doesn't know is the real estate excise tax for those selling their homes. And that's been very popular. So expanding that to get first time home buyers a chance to get into a home and build generational wealth, things like that is also a very popular but idea. Is it true for a lot of these people? Uh, the, the governor. The problem isn't the, the available housing. It's they have a drug problem. Which they can't lick, and which we still don't have the facilities to treat, right? And we can't, and we still can't force people into treatment who, uh, when they're offered even housing, say, no, I want to stay here. 
So I so and I didn't pull this cut, but I will tell you that uh, Mark Jones from the Regional Homelessness Authority yesterday said specifically that this collaboration and the successes they're seeing now shows that he said it's a myth, right? That that mm-hmm. people just refuse services. Now I don't know that really? that's a hundred percent true. Uh, that's what he said he, okay. uh, verbatim. In fact, uh, I, I think that there are many people who would argue with that. Uh, I will say also that the governor addressed yesterday just briefly that yes, there, that goes hand in hand. We do need to have more investment. Uh, in mental health services, all of these various things, you know, Western state. There is the bill from, I want to say it was from Jamila Taylor, that should be coming online. It has to do with involuntary commitment that has been expanded to include those who are addicted to drugs that should create an avenue for some level of forced treatment. Uh-huh. Uh, that I expect to, uh, that passed last session and should be online or about to come online anytime now. So that will be something I'm following. Uh, I'll just tell you, uh, Nicole Macri, we won't have time to get to it. She, she gave an example of, uh, the weeks that it took for her to work with Mayor Bruce Harrell to clear two two different encampments and get folks into housing as opposed to the the months or years that it would have taken earlier. So that was a really good example. And we also heard from Lisa Dugard, who I uh, have a great amount of respect for. She'd worked with LEAD forever, and she said that she was seeing success. And I'll tell you right now that she would be, above all else, more honest really? than anyone, about when it's not working. Yes. So you're uh, convinced, so you're convinced this looking- is a real change then? I, I am. I, I am. Uh, I, you know, it's certainly not there yet. I'm. Con- I'm convinced this is the best chance and the best hope I've seen so far. But I've said that before, and it fizzles out. So uh, I think if they can keep it up, great, uh, and keep collaborating, great. And then if there's lots of oversight on where all the money is going. Cardinals Radio's Hannah Scott. Thank you, Hannah. Your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Baird. You know, when choosing stories for this segment, we often debate whether what we're hearing is kindness or just common sense. Kindness is a very specific brand of human expression. So I wasn't sure if this next story fit, but I still thought it was important for you to hear. And ultimately, it took everyone in Posey County, Indiana, to be kind to get through this. Here's CBS's Steve Hartman. I've never seen anything quite like it girl steps to a podium. Hi, everyone. Says her name. I'm Sophie Kloffenberg. And without uttering another word, gets an ovation. A standing ovation. So what did 17-year-old Sophie Kloppenberg do to deserve such respect here in Posey County, Indiana? She rectified an injustice. 144 years in the making. In 1878, after a rape allegation, seven black men were lynched here. Four of them hung directly outside the same county courthouse they never got to set foot in. It was the largest lynching in state history, and yet the whole incident had been largely forgotten. Until Sophie heard about it. She started at the courthouse, looking for a plaque or any mention whatsoever. Nothing on that courthouse square and no public acknowledgement of what happened. Maybe people didn't want to remember. Mm -hmm. I'm sure people don't want to remember because it's hard to remember tough things, but it's unacceptable to just forget. It's also unrealistic to expect others to care as much about the issue as she did. Posey County is more than 95% white. Erecting a reminder to a racist past wasn't exactly a high priority around here. Thank you all very much. But that didn't stop Sophie from appealing to the county commissioners. Repeatedly. How passionate was she? Very. Commission President Bill Collins. You would probably be hard-pressed to find many seniors in high school anywhere in the country 
that would be willing to take on something like this. Racism still exists. And Bill says even fewer who could succeed. I'm proud of Posey County, Indiana, and the beautiful people here. We're having the difficult conversations and giving a tangible voice to its minorities. Thank you. Thanks to that diplomatic touch. This week, here in the heart of Red America, 144 years after that mob gathered in the square, another crowd formed on the very same spot. This time, to watch Sophie unveil a memorial bench and historical marker, formally acknowledging the past and celebrating the progress. Steve Hartman, on the road, in Mount Vernon, Indiana. 7.50 from the Gian Ursula Show. Here's G. Scott. Uh, I saw I was seeing Christmas decorations in Costco a month oh. ago, but now they're here in uh, earnest. Real quick. I'm glad you brought that up. Good morning to you and everybody listening right now. Let me tell you guys what happened to me. Today is 11-3. It's November 3rd. I was driving this morning. Minding my own business. Listening to you guys, as I always do. And then Colleen did it. What? She, oh, she, yeah. Oh. Yo, wait, get let it, let it go in. I think it fades. Sorry. <laughs> Boom. That's all I needed. That's all I, I needed. I just need the little it dings at the side. put me in such a good mood. Right now is the best time of the year. It's also the time we eat the most, at least me, I do. But anyways, it is phenomenal. The holidays, Thanksgiving, which, by the way, is the greatest holiday ever. Mm. It's a holiday where we celebrate each other and family. And before we get ready to eat, we do what? We say what we're thankful for. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, of course, you have the holidays and Christmas and everything. But sorry, I could go nuts like this, but I just get emotional thinking about it because Holiday season is the ultimate bath time of the year, right? <laughs> it is a bath. Let me explain. This is the time where you wash up, you clean up. A lot of families ain't talking. Folks not talking to this person. Folks not talking to that person. Fathers turning in their candidate sons for lying about right. military service. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? That kind of thing's happening. Mm-hmm. But then even though they turn in the son, Thanksgiving time, you sit around a table and you get the prayer and you're like, you know what? We're a family again. I don't think that's happening with them, but, <laughs> but I but get you know your point, about. right? That'd Where you nice, can go, so, okay, yeah. let's come together. Let's uh, take in what happened during the year. I agree. I I haven't decorated for Christmas yet. I know that this is a hot button topic for a lot of people, but yeah. there was one year in particular, like, I want it, was it in the middle of the pandemic or just before, you know, I was sort of in the depths of postpartum depression and all of that. And it's mm-hmm. like, no, I needed the Christmas decorations early. And so I'm not going to yuck other people's yum when it comes to if you want your Christmas tree up November 1st and that brings you happiness. You know what? We need to suck all the happiness out of this world we can because it's a tough one. My homeboy Rick does it every year, November 1st. Yeah. He's done it this year. And I, I can't argue with it. You know, you just put it off to the side, put your lights up and everything. Mm-hmm. And there are some people that I'm learning that keep their lights up, even if you like put it on the windows and everything. Lights up. <laughs> Yeah. Is there anything wrong with lights? No. Yeah. Dave, why are you looking at me with disgust? Blair? I'm not looking with disgust. I think I, I love lights. I have light strips all over the inside of the house, which, you know, change depending on the time of day. Oh, wait, I just what? It's just been a while since I've actually gone out and strung lights on, the, yeah. on trees. Not and even for your grandchildren. I feel like that sort of comes back once you get grandchildren, yeah, I, right? You're absolutely right. I Dave. should do that because when the grandkids come over, they should see something. You need to create a magical Dave. home. Yes, what is it, Gene? Can we Can we go back to the lights, man? Sure. Um, 
what you doing in the house? Or you got lights? You got you got you got you got you got blue light. I mean, you got a voice for it. My my, yeah, I do. Sometimes when you get mellow after six. After before, after six before eight o'clock bedtime, yes, yes, okay, yeah, we have the uh, yeah we have the the evening mix which is sort of you know a yellowish uh, ochre kind of thing, and then there's the morning mix which has the blue lights and the bright oh you know God. white lights. Mm-hmm. So you can program on, on your phone now. What are you like Bill Gates? Mm-hmm. Jeez, no. do they play music? Just a little app you on your phone. Too? You press now, the button, you cool. get any color you want. Now after cool. all after all that, mm-hmm. you have and sit down and unwind with a peanut butter and kale sandwich That's while they right. watch Jeopardy. We watch Jeopardy. <laughs> That's right. Then we, we play the wordle. And then we go to bed. <laughs> hey, wait, what time do you go to bed, Dave? Yeah. Uh, well, last night, unfortunately, it was like 1030. Because he I, takes naps. Not, and I take a nap when I get home. Yeah. So it's a um, uh, pretty eventful life, G. <laughs> I love that this is G. Scott segment, but so often we turn it into how much yeah, information I, can we get oh, yeah, out of Dave? I, I know why, why that happens that way. Anyway, G. Scott joins us <laughs> after Lister six, though, right? After yeah. six. S I X. S I X. Yeah. Okay. After six. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. There is an FBI recording now of Stuart Rhodes, leader of the Oath Keepers, who talks about hanging Pelosi from the lamppost. Let's go to CBS analyst Leonard Steinhorn, who teaches communication and history at American University. Uh, What's the significance of this, Leonard? How does this help the case? Well, the significance of this is that uh, you have the leader of the Oath Keepers who talked about insurrection, who was involved on January 6th, who seemed to want to have a direct line to the former president of the United States because the person recording uh, this conversation claimed he had a direct line to former President Trump and his team, uh, saying that, you know, if persons that they would target would be Nancy Pelosi and they would hang her from a lamppost. So... What is it, where did this all leave us? Um, there has been violence in politics for, you know, since we first started as a country. We've had assassinations. We've had people at each other's throats on the floor of Congress. Where this seems to be different is that a former president and a political party are giving a wink and a nod to people who basically are using some of the most extreme rhetoric and potentially acting on it to get their way in politics. It's not that Donald Trump did, you know, put in force the Insurrection Act to try and keep himself in power. But the very fact that he talked about it, the very fact that he said that this election was stolen, the very fact that he said, we're going to go to the Capitol and march on the Capitol. um, How much of a permission structure does that give to some of the unhinged extremist folks who have always been around there to do what they want to do and potentially to cause violence against our elected officials. So we are in a very bad space here as a country right now. And if the politicians sort of don't step back and say, this is wrong, this is intolerable, we have to accept the norms of our democracy. And in the aftermath of the attack on Nancy Pelosi, if all of them condemn it rather than make fun of it or dwell on conspiracy theories about it, we'd be in a better place. But we're not there. Is there anyone out there in current politics today who could unite parties so they would be outspoken about it? Because it seems that ship has sailed. 
Well, President Biden is certainly trying to make that case. He did uh, last evening at Union Station in Washington, D.C., which was only a few hundred yards from where the uh, January 6th insurrection took place. But, you know, can anyone be a uniter in that regard to talk about it? I'm not so sure until we sort of deal with the cancer on our politics, which is this, which is the fact that some people believe that the only fair elections are the ones that they win. And therefore, if they lose an election, then the other party, in this case, the Democrats, are trying to overthrow the government and take over the government, which then basically gives permission to people like Stuart Rhodes and the Oath Keepers to say, hey, maybe we got to do something to prevent the other side from overthrowing the government and stealing these elections. So it would really be nice if the former president can step up and say, you know what, I use extreme rhetoric. Don't take me literally. I was upset with what happened. I'm going to double down and fight to persuade people in 2024 if I run for reelection. And people, you have gotten the wrong message from me. And Americans, I apologize. That's not going to happen. That, sound, that sounds He's nothing like too him. too far down yeah. that road. Yeah. Right. He's gone too far down that road. Who else is out there who can say something like that? Right. Do you have Mitch McConnell saying it? Not really. Do you have Lindsey Graham saying it? Not really. Do you have Ron DeSantis saying it? Not really. Somebody's got to step out there and say it. And it just can't be those sort of apostate lapsed Republicans who have left the party or are challenging the party like Liz Cheney because lots of uh, Republicans won't listen to her. What worries me is that you have members or at least former members, of the U.S. military involved in the Oath Keepers. In fact, the guy who recorded this conversation and turned government witness used to be uh, in special ops. That's very concerning. Now, the very fact that he heard this conversation and decided that it was so extreme that he went to the FBI with this recording is somewhat encouraging because it tells you that maybe there's a hard stop to what some of these folks are experiencing and that they, they did take their oath of serving in the military seriously, that they uphold the laws and the constitution of this country. But there's always in any group people who are on the fringe or on the extreme. And it is troubling. It's not unusual, not unexpected. You've seen some people, former military people turn, you know, pretty extreme. I mean, you have Michael Flynn, former general, sort of (laughs) cheerleading this type of mentality. This isn't unusual, uh, but you have to hope that the oath they take in the military for the vast majority of them, even if they do have very sort of uh, far right values or perspectives will be the type of thing that led this individual to turn over the recording to the FBI because he realized that this was really going way too far and undermining our democracy and our Constitution. I'm wondering if other people can relate to how I'm feeling, where, yes, I can acknowledge that this slow creep of political violence in in today's America happened over the course of, you know, the last four to six years, but it feels like it happened in the blink of an eye. And I wonder how worse it can get in another blink. So can you look to any other country where this type of political turmoil has happened and, and, and what happened to that country to maybe, you know, have Americans take a listen and go, yeah, we don't want to be that country. Let's let's go back to being America. 
Well, you have extremist elements in all countries that try and exert their power through violence. I mean, you dial back uh, almost 30 years ago to the prime minister of Israel, who, uh, Yitzhak Rabin, who sort of tried to usher in a peace agreement with the Palestinians. And uh, he was assassinated by a far-right extremist who now, uh, the person who uh, assassinated him uh, uh, is to some Israelis seen as a hero. Mm. And in fact, uh, somebody who may be a prominent figure in the new Netanyahu government, assuming Netanyahu becomes prime minister, is somebody who has on his wall a picture of uh, of somebody who went and killed many Palestinians in, in an armed raid. So you have extremists in every country. The difference is that what happens when your political leaders give those extremists a permission structure to do what they want? And even if you have deniability saying, oh, no, I didn't mean to encourage them to commit violence, if you're really giving them a wink and a nod, sort of uh, non-verbally or with coded language to be able to do this, then it's not just the extremists that matter. It's the politicians giving people that permission structure and saying it's okay and saying I support you and saying that you're really good people rather than condemning you outright and saying I want to have nothing to do with you. CBS political analyst Leonard Steinhorn. Leonard, thank you. Hey, thank you. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. You can hear us live every morning on 97.3 FM or subscribe to this podcast and you'll never miss the show.